church while you are standing would you get your copy of God's word and be turning with me to Psalm 51 let me pray first to ask God to help us as we study his word and I want you to hear the reading of God's word and then you may be seated let's pray first Father in heaven, we thank you and praise you for the blood and the righteousness of the Lord Jesus Christ, our great high priest, who opens for us the path to your throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and grace to help us in the time of need. We need you now as we turn our attention to your word. We pray that you would help us to lay aside all filthiness and rampant wickedness so that we might receive with gentleness the implanted word that is able to save our souls. And then help us to be doers of the word and not hearers only, lest we deceive ourselves in Jesus' name. Amen. Psalm 51. I want you to hear the psalm in its entirety from the English Standard Version. To the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. Verse 1, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Behold. You desire truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. Purge me with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me, and I shall be whiter than snow. Let me hear glad joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have broken rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God. Renew a right spirit within me. Cast me not away from your presence and take not your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me with a willing spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. Deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God, O God of my salvation and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. For you will not delight in sacrifice or I would give it. You will not be pleased with a burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God, you will not despise. Do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. 
Then will you delight in right sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. Amen. You may be seated. This is God's word. Permit me to label the message, Getting Right with God. Getting Right with God. Second Samuel chapter 11 verse 1 tells us it was the time of year when kings go to war. But David sent his troops into battle while he remained at home. From his balcony, he spied a woman bathing on her rooftop. David committed adultery with Bathsheba. It did not matter to him that her husband Uriah was off fighting David's wars until Bathsheba became pregnant. David gave Uriah a furlough, expecting him to come home and sleep with Bathsheba. That would cover David's tracks. But Uriah refused to enjoy his wife while his comrades were still in harm's way. So, David sent Uriah back into the war carrying a military brief that instructed the commander to give Uriah an impossible mission. After Uriah's death, David married Bathsheba. No one was supposed to know about David's adultery, Bathsheba's pregnancy, or Uriah's murder but someone did know. One day, the prophet Nathan visited David. He reported local news to the king. There was a rich man with a large flock of sheep that lived near a poor man who only had one lamb. When guests visited, this rich man stole and killed his neighbor's beloved lamb rather than serving one of his flock. David demanded that the culprit be brought to justice and put to death. Uriah said, you are the man. 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, David says, I have sinned against the Lord. Psalm 51 records David's full confession. It is the fourth of seven so-called penitential psalms, the others being Psalms 6, 32, 38, 102, 130, and 143. 
but Psalm 51 is chief among these prayers of repentance. It is the greatest statement about confession, repentance, and forgiveness in the Bible. The heading of the psalm above verse 1 reads to the choir master, a psalm of David when Nathan the prophet went to him after he had gone into Bathsheba. David wrote this psalm as a prayer after being confronted by Nathan about his adultery with Bathsheba and his murder of Uriah. Yet he addressed this psalm to the choir master, indicating that it was to be sung in public worship. This deeply personal poem is meant for everyone, including you and me. It teaches us that repentance is an essential but neglected element of prayer. It furthermore teaches us that God responds to repentance. In fact, that's the good news from this sad psalm. God always answers the prayer of repentance. There are some prayers God will not answer, but God answers every prayer of repentance. In fact, some prayers will not be answered until you pray in repentance. God answers every prayer of repentance. The question on the table as we study this psalm is this. How should you pray when you need to get right with God? Psalm 51 teaches us three prayer requests to make when you need to get right with God. Three prayer requests to make when you need to get right with God. Here's the first prayer request. Forgive me. Forgive me. Some prayers ramble on before they get to what they are about. Not so with Psalm 51. This prayer begins with a plea for mercy and a confession of sin. Consider first, David says at the top of the psalm, I need mercy. Verses 1 and 2 read, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love. According to your abundant mercy, blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. Look at those two verses again. David here says, I have a threefold problem. Transgressions, iniquity, and sin. Transgression is rebellious disobedience. Iniquity is inward perversion. Sin is spiritual failure. David says, I got a problem with all three. And it's not 
merely a theoretical problem. Notice the personal pronouns he uses in these verses. My transgressions, my iniquity, my sins. David takes full account, full ownership of his guilt, and yet this guilty man makes some bold request. Have mercy on me. Blot out my transgressions. Wash me thoroughly from my iniquity. Cleanse me from my sin. Here, in the opening of Psalm 51, the defendant agrees with the prosecution, does not offer a defense, and then appeals for clemency. But he does not disrespect the law. He prays like this because he knows the judge. David pleads for mercy on the basis of God's character. Notice in verse 1 the repeated phrase, according to. According to. This is the basis of his plea for mercy. It's God's steadfast love. This is his covenant-keeping love in which God remains loyal to us even when we are not loyal to him. And then there's abundant mercy. This is compassionate love. The love of a mother who continues to love her child no matter what the child has done. In verses 1 and 2 then, David prays, I need mercy. But in verses 3 through 6, David prays, I have sinned. Just note for yourself that verses 3 through 6 is the core of his confession. This is where he just lays it all out before God. And, and these verses teach us how to pray in confession to God. First, take responsibility. Verse 3, for I know my transgressions and my sin is ever before me. Before Nathan's rebuke, David acted like he did not know his transgression. But now, this is what he says, my sin is ever before me. This is the spiritual paranoia of unconfessed sin. W.A. Jones called it the problem of a present past. David says, everywhere I look, my sin is staring me in the face. A bathtub reminded him of the first time he saw Bathsheba. A glass of wine reminded him of his attempts to get Uriah drunk. A letter reminded him of how he conspired to put to death an innocent man. David says that he was gripped with guilt and God would not let him go until he took responsibility for his sins. And God won't let you go. 
until you take responsibility. Once you take responsibility, you must confess your guilt. David sinned against Uriah, Bathsheba, his own family, the whole nation of Israel, and himself. But notice he says in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. This is a poetic statement about the nature of guilt. David is saying when we sin, people may be the collateral damage, but God is the ultimate target. What I did was against you. Potiphar's wife tried to get David, uh, Joseph, that is, to sleep with her. But in Genesis chapter 39, verse 9, Joseph asks, how then can I do this great evil and sin against God? Not, not against your husband, but against God. Joseph was able to resist temptation because he rightly viewed sin as an attack, as an assault against God himself. That's not just an Old Testament concept. Jesus says one day, everyone's going to answer for how they treat him when he is hungry, thirsty, sick, naked, in prison, or a stranger. And when the nations ask, when did we see you that way? Matthew 25, verse 40, Jesus will say, truly I say to you, as you did it to one of the least of my brothers, you did it even unto me. Sin is a theological issue, not an ethical one. And so David here confesses his guilt. And let me tell you why he did it. I skipped this earlier. You need to note this, the end of verse 4, so that you may be justified in your words and blameless in your judgment. Justified in your words makes God the prosecutor. Blameless in your judgment makes God the judge. He says, Lord, I'm coming clean so that whatever you say about me or do to me, I want you to know you got the right to do it. You ain't man that, but I struggle with that because what David is saying here is that if we know how sinful we are, we never have a right to complain about anything. God has a right to treat us however he determines because of the way we have treated him. Verse 5 says we should make no excuses. We good at that, ain't we? Man, you give us some time, we'll find somebody to blame for what we have not done right. But David doesn't do that. David says, behold, verse 5, I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. David is not blaming his parents for what is wrong with him. David is confessing in a way that will leave no reasonable doubt as to his guilt. He is saying that 
My adultery with Bathsheba and my murder of Uriah was not some out-of-the-ordinary mistake that I made. It is deep-rooted sin. David did what he did because he was who he was. And this is true of all of us. Think about this, church. No child was born in the innocence of the Garden of Eden. No child. Every child is born in a fallen world with a sinful nature. The London Times years ago had an essay contest. The question was simply this, what's wrong with the world? G.K. Chesterton, the author and apologist, won the contest, this was his submission. Dear editor, what's wrong with the world? I am. Yours faithfully, G.K. Chesterton. The same is true of everyone else. We have no one to blame for our sins. Why do we sin? I'm about to get deep on you. Hold your seat. We sin because we are sinners. And we're going to get right with God. We have to stop making excuses. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Tell the truth. Verse 6 says, Behold, you delight in truth in the inward being, and you teach me wisdom in the secret heart. This statement draws a contrast between David's sin and God's standard. God delights in truth in the inward being. David in his inward being was lying about what he did. God did not allow David to remain in this hypocritical state. When Nathan confronted him, God was teaching David wisdom in his secret heart. And so David stopped pretending, and he told God like it is. That's all confession is. Just tell God like it is. And when he told God like it is, God forgave him. God will do the same for you. Proverbs 28 verse 13 has in it both bad news and good news. Whoever conceals his transgressions will not prosper. But the one who confesses and forsakes them will find mercy. How do you pray when you need to get right with God? First pray, forgive me. Secondly, pray, change me. David prayed for sparing mercy, but he did not pray for cheap grace. Cheap grace wants forgiveness without conversion. Lord, bless me while I keep doing what I'm doing. But we need both pardon and purity. And the good news here is in the middle of this psalm, David declares that God can cleanse sin and change sinners. First, he says God cleanses sin. Uh, how, how does he do it? Three ways, verses 7 through 9. He says God washes sin. 
Verse 7, purge me with hyssop and I shall be clean. The, the word there, purge me, means unsin me or desin me. He is asking God to treat him as if what he did never happened. Purge me with hyssop. Hyssop was a spongy branch that was used as a small brush. The children of Israel used hyssop to sprinkle blood on the doorpost during the Passover in Egypt. And the priests would use it to ceremonially wash lepers or those who had touched the dead. David says, God who is able to cleanse leprosy, I'm asking you to purge me and make me clean. Oh, friends, do you hear the good news here? God is able to cleanse the worst of sins. First John chapter 1, verse 7 says, But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus Christ, his Son, will cleanse us from all of our sins. David says, purge me then with hyssop, and I shall be clean. Wash me. That's, that's language for washing laundry, but this is no gentle wipe with a damp cloth. This is thorough scrubbing of stubborn sin. When God washes us, it's a painful process. Because some stuff we've been doing so long, he got to scrub it out. But, but, but if you let him wash you, he can, verse 7, make you whiter than snow. That's a hyperbole. There was nothing whiter than snow in David's world. But what David is declaring in the poetry of the verse is that God can wash black sin in red blood and make it snow white. Isaiah chapter 1, verse 18. Come now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sin be as scarlet, I'll make it like snow. Though it is red like crimson, I'll make it white like wool. God washes sin and God heals sin. Look at verse 8. Let me hear joy and gladness. This is the ironic cost of sin. We seek sin looking for joy and gladness. But sin brings sorrow, not joy, grief, not gladness. Mark it down. Only God can give true joy and real gladness. But still in verse 8, David says, not only does guilt afflict us emotionally, it takes away from us joy and gladness, but it can even, I want you to look at the text, sin can even affect you physically. 
He says, let the bones that you have broken rejoice. I know this is poetry, but I think this is a very real statement about the unacknowledged effects of unresolved guilt. If you don't get it right with God, if you don't give that thing to God, guilt can start messing with you psychologically and emotionally and physically. Psalm 32, verses 3 through 5, this is David still talking about this experience, and in Psalm 32, 3 through 5, David says, for when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all the day. For day and night, your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer, but then I acknowledged my sin to you. And I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's the good news I got for you today. The blood of Jesus can heal all of our soul's diseases. Yes, it can. God washes sin, God heals sin, and God clears sin. Verse 9 says, hide your face from my sins. The Psalms often talk about God hiding his face. It's not, it's not a good thing. God hiding his face is when God withdraws his favor from your life. But here, David prays, Lord, would you hide your face? Not from me, but from my sin. It's an interesting prayer because Proverbs chapter 15 verse 3 says the eyes of the Lord are in every place keeping watch on the good and the evil. God is an omniscient God who sees everything. Uh, but if you repent of your sins, he will hide his face from your sin. Y'all often hear me say, run to the cross. You say, oh, why does he always say run to the cross? Because if you run to the cross, he will hide your sin under the blood of Jesus. Yes, in fact, let me how he does it. Verse 9, hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquity. You know what blot out all my, it, it means erase. My guilt, it's, uh, David is saying, all of us have bad credit with God. And there's no way we can hack God's system and change our credit score. But if you just walk into God's office and tell it like it is, God will delete the record and give you a brand new beginning. Colossians chapter 2 says it this way. In verses 13 and 14, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven all your trespasses 
by canceling the record of debt that stood against us with its legal demand. This he set aside, nailing it to the cross. If you just give God your rap sheet, he will nail it to the cross where Jesus paid it all. God cleanses sin, but God also changes sinners. Verse 10 is the golden verse of Psalm 51. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a right spirit within me. The verb create is used in Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. God created the world, ex nihilo, out of nothing. That's how God changes our hearts. He don't do a repair job with current material. He gives you a brand new heart. It's a divine miracle of spiritual transformation. 2 Corinthians chapter 5, verse 17 explains it this way. Therefore, if anyone be in Christ, he is, she is a brand new creation. The old has passed away, and behold, the new has come. So David says, Verse 11, cast me not away from your presence. David here is not concerned about being cut off from divine blessings. He's concerned about being cut off from divine communion. And he says, take not your Holy Spirit from me. <laughs> He's saying, Lord, don't treat me like my predecessor, King Saul. I don't like talking about King Saul at all. Uh, King Saul teaches us that God can fire you and leave you on the job at the same time. He, he was still king sitting on his throne. But 1 Samuel 16, verse 14 says, Now the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul, and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. He was sitting on the throne but had no anointing. God took his spirit from him. And, and David says, Lord, I don't want that. I, I can't live in my own strength, in my own wisdom, in my own resources. Don't. Don't let your spirit depart from me. This is not a prayer those redeemed in Christ need to pray. Ephesians chapter 4 verse 30 says, And do not grieve the Holy Spirit of God by which you have been sealed for the day of redemption. The Holy Spirit that moved into me the day I got saved is the seal of my salvation until the day of redemption when God finishes what he starts in me. When I sin, 
it grieves the Holy Spirit that lives within me. And the word there for grieved is the same word for grieving over the death of a loved one. That's how the, the Holy Spirit responds when I sin. It grieves him. That's bad news. Here's the good news. When I sin, he doesn't move out. He doesn't leave me nor forsake me. And if you repent, he'll restore you. Verse 12 says, restore to me the joy of your salvation. David didn't lose his salvation, but he did lose the joy of his salvation. Godliness is characterized by joy. Christians are not designed to be miserable people. Our lives are to be marked by joy. But joy and sin cannot coexist. So if you've lost your joy, don't blame the devil for stealing it. Don't blame people. Don't blame circumstance. Check for sin in your own heart. God will restore his joy if you repent of your sin. David says, Lord, give me my joy back. And not only give me my joy back, but then he says at the end of that 12th verse, uphold me with a willing spirit. Sustain me so that I am willing to obey. Don't let my walk be three steps forward, two steps back. Uphold me so that day by day I'll live in willing submission to your divine commands. David is acknowledging that <laughs> left to ourselves, after we've been forgiven, we'll go chasing back those same sins again. And we need God to uphold us. We need God to sustain us. Uh, this is what John Piper calls future grace. We shout over past grace. You need to learn how to shout on future grace. All the grace you need to obey God in the days to come has already been provided. Grace to make that phone call. Grace to resist temptation. Grace to stay faithful in your marriage. Grateful to hang on in there in the ministry. God gives future grace so that you can practice long obedience in the same direction. It's got to say, Lord, uphold me with a willing spirit. There's a lot to pray for as you begin a new year, but before you ask God to set all kind of stuff right in your life, you need to say, Lord, make me right. When you pray God to make you right, there's really three things you need to ask. Here's the first, forgive me. Here's the second, change me. Here's the third. Use me. Use me. Use me. Isaiah, the prophet, 
had a vision of God. He thought he was going to die, but God mercifully spared him and graciously forgave him. Then God asked for a volunteer. In Isaiah chapter 6, verse 8, Isaiah says, Here am I, Lord. Send me. This is the response of gratitude from the recipient of grace. If you know what God has done for you, how can you sit back and not be willing to do anything for Him? To pray for forgiveness is to pray for conversion, and to pray for conversion is to pray for usefulness. David prays about spiritual usefulness three ways. Quickly, hang in there with me for a few more minutes. He first prays concerning God-exalting service. Lord, I, I just want to serve you. Listen to how he says it, verse 13. He says, Lord, if you, if you forgive me and change me, then I will, verse 13, teach transgressors your ways and sinners will return to you. This is a big verse. Here's what it teaches. The motivation for evangelism is grace. Grace is big enough to cover your sin, but it's too big for you to wrap up in it by yourself. Share the cover with somebody else. We ask, well, how can I teach others after what I have done? That's the wrong perspective. It's not about what you have done. It's about what the Lord has done. Richard Davidson said it well. The students in the school of faith become the teachers. Not sharing textbook theology, but personal experience with God. Having received forgiveness and cleansing, David vowed to teach transgressors the ways of God so that sinners would return to God. He ultimately keeps this vow in verse in Psalm 32, which God willing we'll look at next week. But verse 14, David says, deliver me from blood guiltiness, O God of my salvation, and my tongue will sing aloud of your righteousness. Deliver me from blood guiltiness. Interesting terminology. God forgave David immediately and completely, but he still struggled with the aftermath of the blood that he had shed. He still struggled with the guilt of what he had done, but he brought this struggle to the one whom he calls the God of my salvation. There is no hope, church, in doing or saying something to fix our sins. That's the Humpty Dumpty method of spiritual change. Our only hope is in the God who saves. David says that if God would deliver him from blood guiltiness, look at the verse, verse 14, so you won't think I'm making it up. David says, if, if you'll deliver me, Lord, I will sing. Wait. I won't just sing, I'm going to sing loud. David apparently believed in choirs. The song above verse 1 
is addressed to the choir master. He expected a choir to sing it. But David did not believe in proxy worship. He, he didn't believe that worship is when you come to church and listen to a choir do the singing for you. David says, if the Lord has delivered you, you ought not wait on nobody. Y'all ain't in here with me. You ought not wait on anybody to sing for you. If you know what the Lord has done for you, and if you know where the Lord has brought you from, and if you know how the Lord picked you up out the muck and the miry clay, you ought to sing. And you ain't got to sing good neither, but you got to have a song. I've been delivered. Hallelujah. I ought to sing loud about his righteousness. Not goodness, not mercy, not grace. Righteousness. Where you find righteousness? I'll tell you. First John chapter 1 verse 9 says, if we confess our sin. Hey, if you tell it to some people. There's some people that are close to you, but if you tell them what you did, they won't want to have anything to do with you ever again. But if you confess it to God, hey, he is faithful and just to forgive you of your sin. And he won't stop there. He'll cleanse you. Hey, from all unrighteousness. Verse 15, David says, O Lord, open my lips, and my mouth will declare your praise. Because of David's sin, when he got to church, his lips stopped working. Is, uh, is, that, is that your problem? Many, many people come to church and don't praise. You know, I'm not talking about you. Uh, I'm talking about Orange Park, not you. I'm, I'm not talking about other folk, you know. Some folk come to church every week and they never praise. It's as if they think they're too cool to praise or they're too reserved to praise. Or they're too sophisticated to praise. In fact, there's some people that come to church who have never learned to praise, but they have become experts in criticizing other people's praise. Why are they doing all that? She ain't got to be that loud. It don't take all that for him. Y'all not listening to me here. But, but, but rather than thinking something wrong with everybody else and you just cool, could the problem be that you don't get anything out of the worship because guilt mutes praise? Warren Wordsby says, nothing shuts a Christian mouth like unconfessed sin. But hear the words of Psalm 51, the same God that can wash you of your iniquity, the same God that can purge you of your sin, the same God that can create with you a clean heart 
can open up your lips. Y'all ain't in here with me. So that your mouth may declare praises unto God. How that work? How that work, HB? I'll tell you how it works. Psalm 100, verses 4 and 5 says, Enter his gates with thanksgiving. Because when you know where the Lord brought you from, you ain't got to wait on a preacher, a band, a choir, a praise team, a worship leader, a deacon, a verse of shine on me, devotion, none of that. When you know what God has done for you, you can enter his gates with thanksgiving and enter his course with praise. Give thanks to him and bless his name. Do you know why? Because I got a bad report from the doctor. I lost my job. My marriage is on the rock. I don't know how my payment, but the Lord is still good. Hey, hey, the Lord is good. His steadfast love never ceases. And his faithfulness is to all generations. There's God-exalting service, but then, quickly, let me show you God-pleasing sacrifice. Look at verse 16. David says, Lord, now, I, I, I want to, you've been good to me, and I want to, I want to, offer you something when I come to church. But, but I found out you don't, verse 16, delight in sacrifice. Because if that's what you wanted, I'd give it. And you're not pleased with burnt offerings. This is uh, not a repudiation of the sacrificial system. It's an acknowledgement. And this is significant in the day where we live with so many preachers tell you, if you just give an offering, God will, God will do something. David is saying here, God can't be bought off with offerings. God can't be bribed with offerings. Just turn one psalm to the left. I got to quit. Just one psalm to the left. Psalm 50, he says in verse 9, I, you bringing all this to, I won't accept a bull from your house. I don't want no goats from your fold. Because every beast in the forest already belong to me. And the cattle on a thousand hills. God's so rich, he stopped counting cattle and started counting hills. <laughs> I know all the birds of the hills, all that moves in the field is mine. Verse if I was hungry, I wouldn't tell you about it. For the world and all its fullness belongs to me. And let, me let me tell you what's going on here. David is saying, religious activity does not impress God. What impresses God? Verse 17. 
The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O oh God, you will not despise. I, I wish I had time, and that's no pulpit excuse to cheat you. I wish I had time to just linger with that word brokenness. God doesn't want you offering things to him. Ultimately, God, God just wants you. A broken spirit is more important than a burnt offering. Sacrificial offerings don't matter if your heart's not right. So I appeal to you, in the words of Paul, Romans 12 and 1, I appeal to you, church. I appeal to you, brothers. I appeal to you, sisters, by the mercies of God. Present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Then in verses 18 and 19, David says, and I'm finished, do good to Zion in your good pleasure. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in right sacrifices, sacrifices and burnt offerings and whole burnt offerings. Then bulls will be offered on your altar. In these closing verses, David shifts from a focus from the personal to the corporate. And let me tell you what I think is going on in here. David recognizes his sin has affected other people in his life. The world says, it's okay to do whatever you want to do as long as you don't hurt nobody else. David is saying you can't sin against God without hurting everybody else. But now that David has gotten right with God, he can pray for his people. Do good to Zion and build up the walls of Jerusalem. This is a king's prayer for his nation, but it should be the prayer of the godly for the community that we live in. We need God to show us good pleasure. We need God to keep us secure. But I think the spirit of this is we need to stop fussing about what ain't going right in the government until we start getting things right in the church. If God's going to get the city right, we got to get right. And then pray that God will bless the city. Only right people can offer right sacrifices. David prayed this with a focus on the altar in the temple. We pray this with a focus on the cross of the Lord Jesus Christ. Hebrews 13, 15 says, through him let us continually offer a sacrifice of praise. The fruit of our lips that acknowledge gratefully the name of God. If you're like me, church, there's a lot you need God to do in your life and in your family and in your work. But before we ask God to fix things around us, we should first pray, Lord, make me right. And when you pray to get right with God, it, it, it just means that you make these three simple petitions. Lord, forgive me according to your mercy.
Lord, change me according to your blood. And Lord, use me according to your grace. If you believe God can do that, give him a praise. I'm finished. Amen.